Good morning. Thank you for inviting me here today. Uh, as you heard, my name is Vilma. I live in God, Manchester, with my husband Cliff, who's here as well. And we worship at God, Manchester Baptist Church. I am a Baptist minister and also a spiritual director and also a day chaplain at uh, Ely Cathedral, only two days a month, so as a volunteer there, which is really nice. And you probably have noticed that I have an accent. I'm American, <laughs> but I've been living here for over 30 years, so I consider myself British, really, but I still have that accent. Anyway, that's, that's me in a nutshell. So there's nothing much more to say about myself, but we're here together, gathered together to praise and worship the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does the Bible tell us about worship? Well, Scripture gives us a little glimpse of worship in heaven, and I'm reading uh, from Revelation chapter 5. And the Apostle John uh, records, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So what a picture of what's happening in heaven right now, of every being worshipping God and worshipping the Lamb, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're singing and rejoicing because of what he has done already. For who? For them? Not so much, but for us, for his creation. And that is where we come. This is where we join. Heaven and earth join together as we stand to sing and worship our God. So let's stand to sing. Now, I'm not a children's worker by any stretch of the imagination. But I have had children a long time ago, yeah, granted, but still, I've had children. So I think I can tell a story or two. Now, my children used to like, uh, like it when I read to them bedtime stories. And um, they particularly liked the stories of, you know, I mean, this is when they were really small. You know the stories of Margaret Wise Brown? Have you heard of her and Goodnight Moon or the Runaway Bunny? Some of you have. That's good. <laughs> so, 
the runaway bunny is was one of one of their favorites, and in fact, it was、uh, one of my favorites as well. And I thought I'd read you the story. So I'm going to read a story. You look pretty tired. This is a bedtime story, and I don't have any PowerPoint presentation or anything like that. So you're going to have to use your imagination. So there's a novel idea. No screens, nothing except my voice, and the story, which is a really great story. So relax. Close your eyes if you want, and let's listen to the runaway bunny. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away, and I see somebody wanting to run away already. So his mother. So he said to his mother, "I am running away." If you run away," said his mother. I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me," said the little bunny, "I will become a fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream," said his mother, "I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you." If you become a fisherman," said the little bunny. "I will become a rock on the mountain high above you. If you become a rock high on a mountain," said his mother. "I will become a mountain climber, and I will climb to where you are." Hmm. Well, if you become a mountain climber," said the little bunny, "I will be a crocus hidden in a garden." Oh, if you become a crocus hidden in the garden," said his mother, "I will be a gardener, and I will find you." If you're a gardener. And find me," said the little bunny. "I will be a bird, and I will fly away from you. If you become a bird and fly away from me," said his mother. "I will be a tree that you can come home to. If you become a tree," said the little bunny. I will become a little sailboat, and I will sail away from you. If you become a little sailboat and sail away from me," said his mother. "I will become the wind and blow you to where I want you to go." Hmm. If you become the wind and blow me," said the little bunny. I will join the circus and I will fly away on the flying trapeze. If you go flying on a flying trapeze," said his mother, "I will become a tightrope walker and I will walk across the air to you. If you become a tightrope walker," 
and walk across the air, said the little bunny. I will become a little boy and run into a house. If you become a little boy and run into a house, said his mother, I will become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. Oh, shucks, said the little bunny. I might just as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. And so he did. Have a carrot, said his mother. She was quite pleased. It's a fun story. It's a great story. It's a great story to put children to sleep, actually, if you just read it, you know. (laughs) But the little bunny has such a great imagination, doesn't he? He wants to run away from home and do all sorts of different things. But what does Mother Bunny do? Well... She tells her little bunny that no matter where he goes, no matter where he tries to hide, or what he tries to turn into, she will find him and do all she can to bring him back into her loving arms. Why? Simply because... She loves him. And she does such a good job of showing her love for him that he decides not to run away after all. He just says, oh, shucks, I might as well just stay at home if you're going to find me anyway. And you know, there is a very similar story in the Bible, just like the runaway bunny. Now, the wheel's turning. Can you think where it might be? Who this might be? Nothing? Okay. In the Bible, there's a man, or there was a man called David. And David wrote lots of poems, or, or lots of psalms, as we call them. And in one of his psalms, namely Psalm 139, David makes the same discovery about God that the little bunny made about his mother. David discovers that there is nowhere he can hide or run away where God cannot find him. And he says in very fancy language, from verse 7, if you're looking at it in the Bible. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. No matter where David wants to run away to, whether it's to go high up in the sky, if I go to the heavens, I don't know, maybe he wants to become a bird and fly away that way. 
Or take, or maybe, you know, go down to the depths, he says. Well, I don't know, take a submarine. Here's an idea. Take a submarine down to the bottom of the sea. Maybe God won't find him there. Or if he decides to go far east, maybe far away. That's China. Somebody's been to China just this week, so. (laughs) Was God there? (laughs) Or if he completely goes the other way to the west. Even there, God will find him. Even there, God will try to guide him back. As the story goes, David is amazed at just how much God knows him and how much God loves him. So just like the little bunny in our story, David decides there's no point, no point whatsoever in running away from God. Because why run away from someone who loves you so much? It's far better to stay close to God and enjoy all his love. That's David's conclusion. It was the little bunny's conclusion. And hopefully it's our conclusion as we know and and grow in knowing God. Now, just out of curiosity, how do you think? I mean, we know God loves us. We love him. How do you think we can express our love? How do, how do we express our love generally? Not just to God, but to our moms, our dads, our nannies, granddads. How do we, what are some ways that we can express our love? Any ideas? Nobody loves anyone here, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> well, what's, how do you express your love? You what? Oh, by cuddling mummy. That's how you, so you give mummy a great big hug. Do you tell her I love you? Yes, that's a good way of expressing. How do you express your love? By shying away. Anybody else? By spending time together. That's a perfect way of of expressing your love. By spending time. By giving your time. How do you express your love? I'm deaf. By what? You like mummy cuddle. You cuddle mummy back. That's really great. That's a great way of expressing this hugging and kissing and telling each other that we love you so much. How do we do it for God? He's not here. We can't hug him and cuddle him. How would we do this for God? How do you think we will tell God how much we love him? Any ideas? Well, lots of times all God wants us to do is just to obey him. 
the best way of showing God that we love him. And you know, it's the best way of showing our moms and dads, our nannies and granddads. Isn't it great when, as a mother, I could tell my children, would you do this? And they'll say, yes, mom, of course I will. And they obey me so wonderfully. And it's like, oh, they love me. (laughs) You just feel it. (laughs) But... That's one way of expressing our love for God, is to be, or just as we express our loves to each other, we spend time together, we hug, we can't hug God like that, but we can spend time with him, and we can pray, and we can listen to what he has to say when we, when we, when we read the Bible, and those are good ways of showing God that we love him. And another way of showing God that we love him is by singing, and that's exactly what we're going to do. We are going to stand and sing, and as we sing, we're also going to take up the offering, if that's okay, whoever the stewards uh, to do that. Well, there's been Lots of drama happening recently, hasn't there? Especially in the last uh, few days. We have had our referendum, of which the results has been for Britain to leave the EU. And that decision has shocked and shaken almost 50% of the nation. It has surprised the European countries, not to mention the rest of the world, hasn't it? It's been real, a real surprise, a real shock. A further knock has been that David Cameron, David Cameron said he's going to resign as um, the conservative uh, leader or as prime minister. And also the financial markets have had a shake-up as well. So everything seems to be all up in the air at the moment. So these are unsettling times. But as a church, we must remember this. And, you know, it was really great. Um, Cliff found this great blog (laughs) on the Internet, which I'm going to read you a little... Uh, bits from it, because I think this guy, Ben Jeffrey, kind of, really kind of puts it together. He said, whatever we believe about the politics, as God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, we are in a unique position, because our lives are not built on the foundations of political parties or financial strengths. We are a priesthood and our hope comes from God. That's the thing that we need to remember. Come what may, no matter what happens, whether the mountains fall and all that, we are safe. We shouldn't be like everyone else running around like a chicken without a head thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Oh, we're going to fall apart. No, no. We're safe in God's hands. He continues saying, whether or not you wanted it, we have an opportunity, a responsibility even, to push against fear and encourage the nation to have hope and to become a people defined by love and charity. 
your role as the priesthood may never have been as significant, as, as impacting, if that's a word, as it is this week. We are not the broken. We are the redeemed. We are not the triumphalists. We are healers. And so he ends this blog by saying, Let, let's be the church that a divided nation needs at this time. And that is so true. The nation is divided. And we may have our own political views. But at the end of the day, who are we really? At the end of the day, we are children of God, citizens of the kingdom of God. And in that place, there is peace. And when we're at peace, we can think. And we can hear God speaking. So let's, let's really portray that to the world, to be this, na- this community of peace in the middle of this mayhem. So I understand you're doing a series from the book of Joshua. And that's great. It's a great book. So you have been following, actually, the people of Israel enter the promised land by this time. And you presumably heard last week that under Joshua's leadership, the Israelites crossed the River Jordan and they are now in Canaan. And I just thought, you probably heard this before, but it's, I don't know if it's more for my benefit than for yours, because you've been doing the series and I haven't. But just, uh, just a little quick, and I mean really quick, history. The reason they're in Canaan is because God had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and to all his descendants. God established a covenant with Abraham and said that he and his descendants would be God's people. That God would bless them and make them prosperous. And they in turn, and the reason he was going to do this is so they in turn could be a blessing to the rest of the nations. But ever since Joseph, you know, the one with the Technicolor dream coat, ever since he brought his father Jacob and his 11 brothers out of Canaan because of a famine, he brought them over over to Egypt, the Israelites had never lived in the Promised Land since then. They lived, developed, and grew over decades, over centuries even, a good 400 years in Egypt, where they eventually um, they were enslaved by the pharaohs there. So that's, that's a little bit of the history. So God had already chosen Canaan to be the promised land. He actually gave it to Abraham and his descendants. And then somewhere along the line, they left Canaan 
and they ended up living in Egypt. And that's actually where the few handful, there was about 70 that went into Egypt, uh, turned into a great big nation by the time um, God shows up again. So you fast forward 450 years or thereabouts, and God sets his people free from slavery in Egypt to lead them again to the promised land. So this is where he comes in again. And he takes now this nation, no longer just a a family, but a whole nation, and he takes them out to lead them back to the promised land, the land he had promised Abraham that he would have, have his people there and he would bless them there and he would make them prosper there and they will in turn be a blessing to the nation. So this is where, what, where God is going. He's taking his people back to the land he had promised them. The journey from Egypt to Canaan, Canaan should have taken uh, a few weeks. That's all. But the Israelites were so rebellious and they were, they just had a terrible streak in them. They were really disobedient that they angered the Lord. And so they wandered around the desert for 40 years. And they did that. Because the Lord did not want that generation to go into the promised land. He did not want them to, um, to have all the goodness that he had promised because they had been so rebellious. So he did the 40 years, which was long enough for that rebellious generation to die, to you know, actually die out, leaving the next generation to enter the promised land. So that's, that's what happened. So you probably heard last week that the crossing, that now they're going into the promised land, but this crossing into the promised land was quite dramatic. God just stopped the flow of the Jordan River, which at the time would have been flooded. The scriptures tells us that it was flooded, so it was huge, a huge river, not just a trickle of a river, but a huge river, and God stops that flow just like that. And he stops this flow, not just here so that this, you know, these people can go. He stops it like miles away from where the Israelites are so that these two, roughly two million people can get across. So this is quite a dramatic scene. So you can imagine this mass of people just going across the Jordan and going into this land, this new land, this promised land. And then you can imagine that after everyone gets there and everyone's on dry land, the Lord just lets the river flow again. This was nothing short of a miracle. And all the people of the land, the Canaanites, the Amorites, and all the other ites of the land knew that this was a miracle. And we're told in verse 1 of chapter 5 that the inhabitants of the land were filled with fear because they saw that the God of Israel was mighty and powerful. Perfect. It's a really good scene. It's perfect. 
God's got his nation of people safely across the river into the land they will conquer. Among the two million people or so, there are at least 40,000 armed men ready for battle. You would have heard that last, last week. And on top of all that, the Canaanites themselves are really scared. So it's a perfect time to take the land, to conquer. Strike while the iron is hot, yeah? So you've got everyone there ready, and the men ready to fight. And you could just imagine these men going across the river, you know, just so excited and just all pumped up and ready to fight and full of armor, whatever it was that they had to fight with, running across the river. And they would have kept on running. They would have kept on running, no doubt, to the city of Jericho to conquer that city just at that right time because they knew everyone was afraid of them. And they would have kept on going had God not stopped them. And this is where we are right now. And we're going to turn to Joshua chapter 5, and we're going to read from verses 2 to 12. So, the men, they would, probably would have ran straight to Jericho to conquer the city. But then, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Harloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the law. For the Lord has sworn to them that they would not see the land that he has solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, While camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. 
The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grains. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. It's funny. But God doesn't seem to be interested in the might and power of his army. He's got 40,000 men ready to fight. But instead of letting them just go for it, he stops them. There's something that has to happen first. He needs to see what's going on with them. They need to stop and take a, take a good look at what's going on around them. You see, God is not so interested in their strength. He's more interested in what's going on inside. And he's more interested to make sure that they know who they are inside, who they really are. He wants to make sure, he wants to remind them who they belong to. You see, 600 years earlier, God had initiated the practice of circumcision with Abraham. Circumcision, God told Abraham, would be... a sign of the covenant that was made between God and Abraham. And it was the pra- that practice that from that time on, all male Israelites would be circumcised. So within eight days of the birth of every Israeli male child, that child was circumcised as a sign that he was a child of the covenant. The sign that he and eventually his family would belong to God's family. Abraham himself was circumcised at the age of 99. And so the tradition started. But for some reason, the Israelites wandering in the desert let this this kind of practice lapse. And in our story, it was this new generation that was circumcised by Joshua. And this would have been their first circumcision. After all the men had been circumcised, declared the Lord, after all that had happened, so it wasn't time to fight, it was time to, to actually know who you belong to after all that had happened. The Lord declared in verse 9, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. In other words, he was ready for them to put behind them the shame of being Egyptian slaves, the reproach of being a laughing stock to the other nations because they had been wandering in the desert for 40 days, the shame of being excluded from the promise he had given Abraham. 
the shame of being excluded from the rights or from all the rights that they would have had as a covenant people. That circumcision proved that that history, all that, was now history. That that part of history was now cut off. So the act of circumcision declared a new life for the Israelites. It gave them a new identity. They were no longer who they were before. They now belonged to God. They were no longer slaves. They now were free. Children of God, entitled to all of God's promises. And that's what circumcision did for the people of Israel. So through this act of circumcision, God renewed his covenant with his people. He wiped out all the shame of their wandering years in the desert and gave them a new start and a new identity. A new start and a new identity that actually spoke to them and said, remember who you belong to. Remember who you belong to was God's message through their circumcision. They belong to God. God's message to you and to me is exactly the same. In a sense, we too have been circumcised. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians says, in him, meaning Jesus, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, we are not who we used to be. People wandering around life aimlessly, just interested in personal satisfaction, interested in selfish gains. Jesus cut all that away, that old life away from us. He cut away that old life with its sin and guilt when we were baptized in the name of God, whose name, as you know, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our baptism marked a new beginning for us with a new identity. Who are we? We are now children of God. We now have a heavenly Father who looks after us and protects us. And as Christians, we should never underestimate that new beginning. We shouldn't forget it. The Israelites will discover their new identity comes with power, with the power of God to conquer the land. As you read on in this story, that's what they'll discover. Our new identity comes with power too, the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is in us. He's not around us. He's not up there. He's not over there. He's in us. 
The Holy Spirit lives in us to help us conquer those temptations that are in and part of the world that so often attracts us. He lives in us to teach us and to help us live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. He has been given to us as a sign of our new identity. So be encouraged. Remember who you are. Or better yet, as one commentator puts it, remember whose you are. Through Jesus our Christ, we are a new creation. We belong to God. We are now his children. The blood of Christ has rolled away the reproach of sin and death so that we can hold our heads up high and live at peace with our Heavenly Father, with ourselves, and with others as well. And this is something to shout hallelujah to, because this is what God has done for us. Now, I don't know you, but if you are a believer who has not been baptized, I hope you're encouraged to see what the simple act of baptism really means. It means the opportunity to become a new creation and to begin a new life as a child of God and powered by him through the Holy Spirit to grow and develop into the person God has created you to be. It means, like the Israelites, a new beginning. Your past and guilt and shame cut away so you can start afresh. That's what it means to be a new creation before God. So let's remember whose we are. We belong to God and live our lives accordingly. And also remember what he has done. An old professor once said, there are three things I can't remember. I can't remember faces. I can't remember names. And um, let's see. I can't remember what I can't remember. The mind is an amazing thing, isn't it? An amazing um, organ that we've got. And it's amazing the amount of stuff that our our brains can take in and can recall. Uh, For me, it's actually the opposite. I find it amazing at the amount of things I forget. But I think I'm not the only one. I think lots of us forget things. Cliff tells me he forgets things all the time. We have notes and papers and post-its all over the house reminding us of what we need to do. It's a common complaint. We can fill our minds and our lives with so much useful and not so useful information that we can squeeze out all the things that really matter. Remembering the things that God has done in our lives. We forget those things. Those things really matter. But we forget very often those things that God has done 
in our lives. The miracles he has performed, the prayers he has answered, the healings he has done. And so when our scripture, when they celebrate the Passover, this was the purpose of the Passover, the celebration of Passover. The Passover told or tells the story of how God miraculously brought the Israelites out of Egypt. The feast is celebrated to make the people remember God's power and goodness in their lives. Remembering what God has done in our lives is important. It helps keep our faith and trust in God alive. It reminds us that we have a God who is on our side, a God who wants us to be in a relationship with him and who has already done all he can, everything he can do to make sure we arrive safely into his kingdom. It's like the the runaway bunny. He's ready to grab us and to uh, keep us close to him. As a church, on a monthly basis, we remember the amazing things God has done through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. How he voluntarily died so that our sins would be forgiven. How Jesus' death and resurrection Uh, brings us into a close relationship with our Creator and our loving Heavenly Father, as well as unify the body of believers so that our worship can be honoring to Him. I wonder if you have ways of remembering, you know, or something of remembering what God has done in your lives. Do you have something? Do you keep something? Do you write something? Many of us write a journal, don't we? Many of us um, keep a daily record of experiences, of our prayers, of answered prayers. We write down verses that somehow pop into our minds, knowing full well that it's the Holy Spirit who's giving us these verses to teach and encourage and comfort or maybe even to highlight something that we're doing wrong. It's always good to go back through those pages to remember what he has done. So back to our story. The Israelites were now in Canaan, and the rites of circumcision and the celebration of Passover has been established. And now came the real, tangible sign that they had really arrived to the promised land. They ate the produce of the land. Throughout their 40 years of wandering in the desert, God provided them with water from the rocks and from manna and with manna from heaven. The manna was given to them to sustain them, to keep them alive until they got to the place where they would grow and cook their own food and be satisfied. We read the Israelites ate bread and grain harvested from Cana, the land itself. They were there. This was the place God had promised. This land and all its riches was the gift from God to them. And we read that the manna, God's gift from heaven, while they were wandering in the desert and in the wilderness, wasn't needed anymore. 
and it stopped. They arrived in the promised land and the manna stopped. If ever there was a day of new beginnings, this was it. There was a future here. There was land and sea and food and everything they needed to make their homes and live their lives. It was all right there for them. It's amazing. God truly is a God of new beginnings for his people. God's chosen people failed him over and over again. They grumbled, they rebelled, they even bowed down to a golden calf that they had made in the desert. Yet God did not abandon his promises to his people. God remained faithful to his promises and eventually gave this new generation a new beginning. And you know that love and faithfulness God showed his people has not changed one bit. God is still a God of new beginnings for his people today. Even if we feel we have failed him, even if we have sinned against him, the Lord will not turn away from us. On the contrary, we read that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, he will wipe out our sins and give us a fresh new start. And that's something to rejoice about. So, Reading Joshua, I felt, especially these verses, I felt it was, a, it was really good. It was a really good story. And I hope, like uh, me, you've been encouraged to remember that you are really special in God's eyes. So I'd encourage you to remember whose you are. Remember what God has done in your life. And to embrace the opportunities of new beginnings which are available to you today and every day. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, thank you for your words. Thank you for the reminders. Thank you how you put things in place that we um, can see and remember everything that you've done. Thank you for loving us and making us your children. And Lord, we pray that as we live our lives, we will always remember that we belong to you. We will always remember what you have done and that we will always take the opportunities that you give us to start afresh and to do things the way you called us uh, to do them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, Mighty to Save. And I have here the rabbinic blessing, which says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
the, learn, the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. May the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit remain with you today and always. Amen.